Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris and Jake is not here, but that's okay. We are replacing him with Brian Redman, one of the most legendary motorsport figures of all time. Uh, truly an, an incredible driver. His the laundry list of achievements and things that he's done are are off the charts. He, he's an extremely accomplished driver, and you know he does the uh, he does a few different automotive events, of course, across the across the country. But the one that I am very familiar with is the Brian Redman Challenge. Uh, it's called the Hawk. It's been WeatherTech. It's been a few different things, but it's his event at Road America. We just call it the Road America Vintage, or we call it the Hawk. And I believe it's mid-July, July 14th, somewhere in there. I'm not sure. You have to go look at their website. Fantastic event, one of the most beautiful road uh, courses in America. And that's kind of how I heard about Brian Redman. Because when I was young, you would go to this thing and be like, oh, Brian Redman's event. And you didn't really know who Brian Redman was because I'm too young. But as I as I got older, I started to wonder, like, who is this guy? Why does he have this event? And I started looking into it. And as it turns out, the guy is absolutely incredible. So to give, I always try to do a little bit of research ahead of time before I do these interviews. And um, I called up David Hobbs, who is, he actually lives in uh, in the area of where, of where Road America is. You know, famous Formula One announcer, uh, driver, you know, also a very accomplished driver, but he knows Brian Redman while he's always at the, at the event. So I called him up and I was trying to get some different impressions and perspectives on, on Brian, which is something that I always do. And he had some, he had kind words, of course, to say about Brian saying he's, uh, Brian is one of the most underrated drivers of all time. And I called up Derek Bell as well to talk to him. And he said that Brian may have never got all the accolades he deserved and he was bloody good. And a lot of these drivers, when you call them up and you ask them about, hey, what was this driver like? Or, you know, I've, I did the same thing with like Klaus Ludwig and some of these other characters that I've interviewed. And one thing that I, one common thread throughout all of them is that they always say, well, you know, at the time when we were racing, I didn't know them that well. And and, and they, they always chalk it up to competitive nature, not wanting to open up to, you know, other drivers. Maybe they didn't want to become friends. They would see it as weakness and stuff like that. And I, in my head, I kind of challenge that a little bit. I feel, at least from some of these old timers, that um, I think it was more along the lines of you didn't want to get to know somebody that might be dead next week or that day or that lap. And that's one of the things that we're going to touch on in the in the interview with Brian Redman is kind of the psychology and the and the mental strength and what it takes to overcome knowing that uh, that you might not make it. You know, there's. Nikki Lauda famously was at a Nürburgring race saying, I'm not going to go out there if there's a more than 20% chance that I'm going to die. And the, and the thinking of, of accepting that you have a 80% chance of coming away alive is mind blowing to me. It's really hard for me to wrap my mind around. So we're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about, you know, some of the other experiences that Brian has had out on the track. I really enjoyed talking to Brian. I, I enjoy the interview very much. It's, it's always great to talk to these guys. But before we get to that, here's a word from our sponsor, Petrobox. Petrobox is a monthly service made specifically for the automotive enthusiasts. Each month, they carefully select items, including tools, detailing supplies, 
apparel, garage gear, stickers, and publications to be sent right to your doorstep. It's a curated selection of the latest and greatest gear in the industry. And there's actually two different levels of subscription to choose from. You have the Petrobox Basic, which costs less than 20 bucks a month, and the Petrobox Premium, which gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Be sure to check them out at mypetrolbox.com and use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month. Hello. Mr. Redman, it's Chris from the Overcrest Podcast. Yes, Chris. How are you? All right, a bit fraught, really. We just had our annual Target 66 club meeting in Palm Beach. I see. How'd it go? Uh, it went very well. We had a great turnout, including 11 cars from BMW Classic. You've uh, um, you've been racing. You've been doing that for what thirty years? Yes. Yep. This was the thirty first year. Yes. Yes. So you spent your adolescence during the you know during the thick of World War II. You were born in thirty seven, and I'm just curious, what was England like back then? Because as a uh, as a young American, we kind of we see stuff on History Channel and we can kind of look at things, but we really don't have a perspective on on what it was like to grow up during that time. Well, pretty miserable, really. But of course, as a young child, you don't really realize what's going on. And you don't realize that you're not getting much food and you're not getting the food you like. You know, it's just what you get, what you're given. And then when I was eight, I was sent away to school in Wales, about 200 miles from where we lived. And and, uh, it was the same there. I mean, the food was poor. We ate a lot of rabbit that had been shot, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, that's... Was, was was there any car life or anything like that as you're growing up? Because you, your family owned some some grocery stores and stuff like that. But was there was there a cool cars around or what kind of, you know, sparked the interest in that is, you know, obviously this kind of happened after the war was over. But what's what sparked that? Well, I mean, my grandfather was actually a very, very keen car person on my mother's side. And before the war, he had a Fraser Nash BMW Type 328, which was a fantastic car. And then after the war, as you may or may not know, the uh, in war reparations, all the assets of the BMW car company, including the designs, were transferred to the Bristol Aircraft Company in Bristol. And they uh, made a car called the Bristol 400. It was really a BMW copy. The engine was all copied from the 328. And then they made a 400. And grandfather, after the war, had one of those. And then after that, he had an Aston Martin DB24 and then a Triumph TR2. And when he passed away at age of 72, he had an MGA. So pretty active. What, uh, what was he like, your, your grandfather? Um, he was quite a character. He had he'd married uh, a lady, my mother, uh, who was a baker. She had a what, it, what they call a confectioner's shop in Burnley, Lancashire. And uh, he, she passed away at an early age, and he carried on. He lived on the confectioner shop, but he bought a company from the founder called the Patent Ringer Company. And even today, those mop buckets, where you have half a bucket uh, to put the mop in, and the other half you ring it round. It's like a strainer, squeeze the water out. And yeah. That was the Patent Ringer Company. Okay, and that. That was started in 1895, <laughs> and he bought it from the founder, Frank Ness, and then after he passed away, I bought it from my mother for $1,000. How old were you when you did that? 
I was about 22 when I did that. Okay. So but at the time you were had to have been doing deliveries, you know, with, with, with this company and you had a car for that, right? Yeah. I had a Morris thousand uh, Woody, a traveler's car. And I put a Shorrock supercharger on it and harder brake linings, no disc brakes in those days and delivered mop heads around the North of England at a good and pace. And then went racing at the weekend. So. So this is not the, it doesn't sound like the ideal car to throw a supercharger on. That thing had to have been pretty heavy and underpowered. You just, you just, you know, where did the, the effort and desires, you do the work yourself. Where did that drive come from to tinker on the cars yourself? I don't know. I, I found that the only thing that I was, that I enjoyed and was any good at was, was driving. And so I drove like a maniac really on the road, delivering mopeds. And that's why I went racing. I thought I'd better get off the road. Yeah, well, it's easier when there's no speed cameras around all over the place back then, I suppose. Uh, no, not only no speed cameras, but the police took hardly any notice. Yeah. <laughs> so this is the car that you first raced in then, too? Yes, yes. In uh, Easter Monday, 1959, I took it to a local racetrack, well, an hour and a half away near York, where the famous York Minster is. And it was an RAF station, and uh, yes, I raced it there. And you started, you know, doing more racing and more racing, and I'm paging through the book, and I'm seeing, you know, minis and jaguars. And then I turn the page, and then suddenly I'm looking at a red Lola T70 Spider, which is, that <laughs> that is a leap, man. <laughs> Going from, like, a mini to a 400-horsepower V8, I mean, that is a hell of a step up. Yes. Uh, what had happened was after racing all these various street cars that I used in daily, uh, through about 1962, um, a friend of mine offered me a drive in his XK120 in a time trial, and I got fastest time of day. And he said he knew the owner of Red Rose Motors in Chester, who had just bought the X Graham Hill lightweight E-Type, and he'd get me a drive. And so... And two days later, I was at Autumn Park, well-known track in the north of England, as it is today. And I was driving a Jaguar lightweight E-Type, never driven a, a Jaguar of any kind, never mind the lightweight E-Type. And uh, I went three and a half seconds faster than the new owner, Charles Bridges. And he said, what do you want to do on Saturday? This was Thursday afternoon. And I drove that car, I raced it 15 times and was beaten once by a 250 LM uh, Ferrari. So the, tell me about this, the first drive in this Spider, all of a sudden having all that power. That must have been intoxicating as someone that had been driving things with quite a bit less. Well, I had been driving the, uh, you know, the lightweight E-Type, which had quite a lot of power, but nothing like the lower T-70, of course. And I had raced at Spa-Frankish on the fastest track in the world at that time in a GT40. But the first time out in that Lola T70, it was raining, as it often does in the north of England. And uh, I came around the corner called Lodge, a 90-degree right-hander in the second gear. And then there's a dip, a blind left-hand brow. And normally, in the E-type, in the rain, I just, you know, I got round the corner and got it more or less straight, floored the throttle, and off we went. Well, I did this in the T7 to my first time out of it, and uh, I spun. And so I went over Deer's Leap, as it's called, the Blind Brow, backwards and spinning right along the pit road where I saw the owner, Charles Bridges, anxiously gripping the barrio with a white face. Yeah. <laughs> I was, he was probably racing through his mind if he'd made the right decision or not. 
uh, yes, I'm sure if I'd hit something, I would have been out of a drive. You know, so. That would have been an interesting uh, segue over the career that you were building. Um, which, I mean, it, as you grew your career, you started driving on all the legendary tracks, you know, Spa, Nürburgrings, things like that. And the Nürburgring especially is something that, as as a young man that looks back at all the tracks and stuff like that, it's still there. And it's a lot different then than it is now. And very, very dangerous. And in the book, you talk about Lauda trying to get everyone not to race the Nürburgring, saying that he would take a 20% chance of driving and no more. What was it? What was so dangerous about that track? Well, initially, and we're talking now about 1967, the first time I went, I was supposed to run, uh, drive a privately owned GT40, and I never drove it because my father had a stroke and I had to go back to England. Uh, the owner of the car, Peter Sutcliffe, said to me, because in those days there weren't any barriers, you know, it was hedges, and there were no curbs, and it was narrow, and the GT40 was off the ground 12 times a lap. It was up in the air over the bumps. And so he said to me, uh, Brian, old chap, you've seen all these little hedges round the track. I said, yes. He said, just remember that underneath them is 100 feet of trunk. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so I pretty well summed it up. If you went through the hedges, you know, you disappeared into the country, down into the forest. So how do you mentally prepare for something like that? You know, Lauda talks about he's willing to a chance. When I think of, you know, anything I do, if I said there's a 20% chance of me not surviving what I'm about to do, there is a 0% chance I would do it because that risk is not, unless I'm saving someone else's life, there's just that risk is too much. How do you mentally prepare to go do something where there's that much risk? Well, the trouble was, it was the only, as mentioned, it was the only thing that I did reasonably well. And suddenly, you know, I'm able to earn a living doing it. Because in 1967, a gentleman called David Bridges said to me, do you want to turn professional? And I said, you know, what does that mean? And he said, it means I'll pay you 30 quid a week, about $50 a week, guaranteed for a year with a car and a mechanic. So that's really how I started in the big time. You know, this was 67. I'd actually started racing in 59. So this was, you know, eight years later. But is that decent money? Thing. Is that, you know, 30, 50 quid? Is that, what does yeah, that compare to? Like what other jobs is that kind of on par with back then? It was about the average for a normal, decent job. Okay. You know, so it wasn't, wasn't any more or less. And even uh, as I, you know, was employed by the top teams, by John Wire Gulf Racing in 1968 and by the factory Porsche and the factory Porsche in 1969 and 70, I got $1,000 a race for Le Mans, Sebring and Daytona and 750 for all the others. So there was no money and it was dangerous. Yeah. So when you, when you wake up in the morning, and, you know, someone has just died or you think about your how do you avoid thinking about your own mortality going into these races? Well, I know, as you mentioned at that time, it was pretty bad, really, because my first Formula One race was at uh, the Kyle Army South African Grand Prix in January 1968. And my teammate was the Italian nobleman Ludovico Scafiotti winner of the Italian Grand Prix in about 66, maybe 67. Charming gentleman. And so the second race, I managed to finish third. And 
the next race, the Belgian Grand Prix, uh, Ludovico Scofiotti had a previous engagement on a hill climb in Austria. And on the Saturday of the race weekend, the news came through that he'd been killed. And my new teammate at the Spa race was Lucien Bianchi, a Belgian. And uh, and he a few months later, he, he was killed at Le Mans. Uh, his Alfa Romeo just veered off the track and went into the trees. And before that, in 68, when I was about to get into the GT40 at Brands Hatch, it's raining, I'm feeling nervous. And a journalist came up to me and said, heard about Jimmy, mate, Jimmy Clark, you know, the best driver of his era, had been killed at Hockenheim. And so it went on. And so, you know, from a personal point of view, you know, I, I knew there was a risk. In fact, you know, at Spa-Francorchamps, the fastest of the circuits and the most dangerous, um, the night before the race, I'd just lie there sweating, you know, sweat dripping off my forehead, thinking tomorrow, you know, I'm dead. <laughs> well, you managed 5,000 mi- 5, kilometers at Spa without dying. So that's a pretty big accomplishment in itself, I would think. Yeah, I've been there five five times. Yeah, so it's pretty lucky, really. It's it's interesting if you think of the way that manufacturers. It's almost like like war, right? Someone dies, you the next guy behind him. You think of the Soviets in World War Two; they just pick up the rifle, the next guy picks it up, and he continues on. Was there this cold feeling from the manufacturers and the race teams that they would just put another guy right there? They just had another guy, and they just plug him into the spot. I don't really think so, but of course, if you didn't want to do it, you know, there's a hundred people waiting to take your place. I don't think they, you know, the manufacturers, they're in the business to go racing. They've got the teams, the cars and great expense even at that time. And so it just carries on. That's that's the way it is. (laughs) I can't imagine. You know, you think about um, today where things are much safer and as a as a young guy that just looks back and goes, wow, that looks like the glory days of, of racing because there was risk and everything else. And you, you, you hear, you talk to guys like you that, you know, were there and the people were dying. And it seems almost like the spectators are in the Coliseum watching, like they, they want the blood. They don't realize that maybe they don't realize that there's human beings out there that were, that were dying at the time and things are safer now and it's better. Do you have a perspective on, you know, how that affected racing and the quality of racing and whether it's as exciting or not as exciting? Well, I mean, there certainly was an element of, you know, uh, let's eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. You know, there was. And of course, leaving, in my case, my wife and two small children, uh, James was born in 1965 and Charlotte in 68, right at the time when it was all happening. Um, it was pretty tough. And uh, Marianne, my wife, only said something to me once after I'd been badly injured at the Belgian Grand Prix at Spa in 1968. She just said, darling, you know, I'd like you to stop racing. And I said, I'm sorry, but I'm doing it. And that's the only thing she's ever said. It, it must have been very, very hard on her. Because I know there's uh, there's other, you know, racers that I've talked to whose wives couldn't handle it. They left. Yes, yes. Yeah, that was true as well. And also some of the wives that were left after, you know, the husbands of being killed, were, it destroyed their lives. It did. It was, you know, you never hear much about that. But, you know, it wasn't just the drivers. It was the people that were left. Yeah, because these drivers are just bigger than life and then they're just gone. The vacuum that's left behind for families must have been enormous. Yes, 
Yeah, it was a tough time. But as you say, you know, probably for, I, I think there's only been one Formula One Grand Prix driver killed since Saturn Senna, which was how long ago? 20, 25 years. Yeah. And that was uh, Jules Bianchi, who was the nephew of my teammate with Cooper, Lucien Bianchi. And he, uh, you know, there was a yellow flag at a Formula One race under very heavy rain and a wet track. And a car had gone off and crashed and there was a crane had been brought onto the track to lift, you know, the disabled car off. And Lucien went into the crane and was killed. Yeah. It's, how did, does it make the racing less emotional now that it's safer? Yes, I think so. How has it changed? Well, you know, as mentioned, you know, when I left home in the 80s, you know, 69, 68, 69, 70, you didn't know whether you'd see your family again. And so it was a pretty emotional goodbye, darling, you know, and a smile. Not much was said because you both knew what uh, what could happen. Yeah, it makes you wonder if the racers of today... You know, the, the talent is there, but you wonder if the moxie is the same. No, I'm sure there's no difference in the quality of the driving or anything else. Although, when you know it's extremely safe, it's tempting to make what might be an unsafe pass. That's true. <laughs> but you... Yeah, I've got this halo here. If I flip over, everything's going to be just fine. <laughs> uh, so in 68, in you drove. You mentioned talking about the GT40, and I just want to kind of hear about, uh, about that car a little bit because – you know, obviously the nostalgia surrounding the GT40 is is at an all-time high, you know, with, you know, beating Ferrari and all these other things. Is it as good as pop culture made it out to be as a car? I think it was, really. It was a very good car. It was. It came from a design by Eric Broadley, the owner of Lola Cars. He built, built a Lola GT car, and Ford actually contracted with him to build a race car, and that was the GT40. And... Uh, it's a, it was a good car, a good, strong car. I mean, you felt safe in it. And we're talking about the mid-60s, you know, 66, 67, 68, 69, by which time it was getting outdated. But the cars that replaced it at the top of uh, sports car racing at that time, the 917 Porsches were very, very weak, you know, in an aluminum chassis made of tubing instead of a monocoque, which is what the GT40 was. Yeah, you mentioned the the 917 being weak when it was, I think it got better as time went on, but especially initially as it was being, being developed, they wanted the works drivers to race it and you declined, right? Well, kind of. It wasn't that it got it, the handling of the original 25 917s in 1969 was terrible. And it was the John Wire Automotive Engineering uh, Chief Engineer John Horseman, who sorted out the problem at uh, a test at the Ostreichering in October of 1969, when John Wire was taking over the running of the official Porsche team for 1970. And so it's the, the strength of the car was never changed, though. <laughs> you, you just hoped you didn't hit something, you know. <laughs> Well, that's, I mean, there's two different philosophies. You know, you drove a lot for Porsche and you drove for Ferrari. And those two companies, their philosophies are completely different. You know, one is very, you know, very emotional and one is very methodical. And you can see that in the in the build of the cars. How were their philosophies different? And um, did you feel that either company treated you differently? Not really, because the Porsche team when I was there was run by a Swiss 
uh, Rico Steinemann, who was a journalist and a race driver. He'd raced at Le Mans. And in 72 and 3 with Ferrari, the team manager was a Swiss, Peter Shetty, who had had the same kind of career. You know, he had raced and he was very good and so we didn't in the ferrari team see the typical wrench throwing and shouting and yelling you know it was actually a a very good team well every race driver imagines getting that phone call right you pick up it's ringing maybe you're having dinner you pick up the phone and there's an italian accent on the other line and you hadn't raced for ferrari yet and every racer i imagine wants to race ferrari do you remember getting that call well, I wasn't particularly keen, but in 1968, I got a call from engineer Mauro Fogheri and said, Brian, you come to Modena and test the Formula Dewey, the Formula 2 car. So I went and I tested, and at lunchtime, uh, he said, you see over there under the trees in the raincoat? I said, yes. I said, this is Signal Ferrari. Of course, what he meant was go faster. So <laughs> the test went okay, and now I'm at the Nürburgring on the south circuit. The south circuit was about uh, five miles around instead of 14, but it was the same kind of thing, uphill and down dale, hedges, etc., etc. And towards the end of practice in the Formula 2 car, I came in like 15 minutes from the end, and Gary said, what's the matter, what's the matter? I said, I've gone as fast as I can. He said, Brian go out and try it harder. You are in 10th place. <laughs> so I'd never been in 10th place. I was in fourth place. Jackie X was my team leader. He was first. And then uh, his courage, I think, was second. And Kurt Ahrens, the local Germans, third, I was fourth. And early in the race, uh, Ahrens put a wheel in the dirt and a stone came through my goggles, which, you know, were World 2 surplus. They weren't very strong. And I stopped, flung my hand up, and uh, then drove slowly around the pits without goggles. Gary shouted, where are your spare ones? I didn't have any. And he threw me Xs, which were dark green sun goggles, which were okay in the sun, but not too good under the trees. And then I drove like a maniac and uh, set fastest lap. I was lapping two seconds faster than anyone and finished fourth and almost third. And I got back in the hotel and I just sat on the bed for 15 or 20 minutes thinking about the whole thing. Went to dinner for Gary, went out, he comes back. He said, Brian, I speak with Enzo Ferrari. For the rest of the year, you drive a Formula Dewey, Formula 2. And in September at Monza, Formula Uno, the Italian Grand Prix. And I said, no, thank you. (laughs) So he says, what do you mean, no, thank you? I said, if I drive for Ferrari, I'll be dead by the end of the year. Well, uh, I'm sure he's never heard that before. Turning that down, that's that's like turning down a knight from being knighted by the king or queen. But then in 1971, I'd had a very difficult uh, year because I'd retired from racing at the end of 1970 and gone to work in a car dealership in Johannesburg, South Africa. I didn't understand the apartheid. And uh, we got raided by the police one night at about 1 a.m. And then we came back in March of 71 with no drive. Uh, John Wire asked if I'd do a one-off drive at the Targa Florio, 44 miles to one lap with over 800 corners per lap. And I'd won it the year before. Even doing the reconnaissance on an event like that must have been a monumental task. How do you how do you prepare for that? How do you 
there's there's nothing like it in the world anymore. Tell me about what that event was like to race. Well, it was obviously very difficult, you know, with so many blind corners and so many corners, 44 miles to one lap, 800 corners. Um, it's not possible to learn it. I mean, some people uh, have, you know, photographic memory or Nino Vaccarello who passed away recently. He had a school there, so he knew the, all of the road perfectly. But I don't think anybody else really did. And all I tried to do was remember the, you know, the tight turns that came after a fast straight and that sort of thing. It's impossible to learn it. You know, it's and it's on public roads too. It's not a, it's not a real circuit. It's just, just Italy. No, yeah, it goes through three villages, and so the actual you only get to run the race car for one lap in practice. It's extremely dangerous because it's an open road with trucks, donkeys, sheep, everything on the road. So the practice, the one practice lap that you got was probably the most dangerous. <laughs> How do the locals feel about this? Uh, locals are basically very enthusiastic. And uh, in the old days, you know, the town crier goes around the village shouting, lock up your goats, sheep and women. <laughs> the race is coming. <laughs> I like the women part. <laughs> so, Joseph had crushed the car the night before, the day before the race. It was repaired overnight, and John Wire asked me to start, which I didn't normally do. And right from the start of the race, uh, the handling wasn't normal, and I got 22 miles round the 44-mile circuit, and the steering broke, and I hit a stone kilometer post right in the fuel tank, and it exploded. Mm. I was very, very lucky to get out. I was on fire from head to foot and no attention for 45 minutes. So you're just laying in this field, basically burned for 45 minutes, just in anguish. Well, you know, the the flames burnt out and some spectators took my overall off and uh, fanned me, fanned me with magazines because I'd been burnt on my face and uh, my hands and the back of my neck. And I was blinded as well, you know, by the uh, eyes had swollen. Terrifying. Yeah. So you ended up in a hospital in Sicily, right? Yes, I did. And uh, after about 12 hours, nobody knew who I was, but Richard Atwood, Porsche team driver, and Pedro Rodriguez, another Porsche team driver, came looking for me and they found me. And so, we know, by October of that year, things are looking pretty grim. I've had the accident, I've been injured, I'm having a struggle with a Formula 5000 car, but the owner of that car borrowed a BRM, a British Racing Motors Can-Am car, and we took it to Imola in Italy for the 500 kilometers. It poured with rain. The car was very good in the rain, and I lapped the field, which included a factory Ferrari driven by um, Pedro Rodriguez. And so after that race, uh, Mauro Ferreri came to me and he said, Brian, what are you doing next year? So <laughs> I had two great years with Ferrari. So I want to go back to, to, you, to, to your retirement. Was that something that you had discussed with Mary and your wife that you were just, you know, you, you just wanted yes. to just be yes. a dad, basically? It was partly that I felt that, you know, getting paid to do something that I enjoyed, like driving racing cars, wasn't a really honest way to earn a living. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, I yes. wonder if that, do you think that affected your, did it cause some of the doldrums in your career when you left and then came back? Did manufacturers kind of forget about you and, you know, or you feel like you needed to prove yourself again before they'd give you another chance or? Well, to some degree, certainly, you know, but uh, I was lucky with that drive in the BRM at Imola that conditions were such that I was able to do well and that Ferrari picked me up you know, for two years. But then we brought a Chevron Formula 5000 to America. Um, and at the end of the year, the last race of the year, Riverside, California, uh, I was slipstreaming Sam Posey, who was driving a Surtees. And turn nine is a very fast corner in top gear or maybe at high revs in fourth gear. And so I was looking to overtake him, and I'm, we're doing 170, and I'm coming up in his slipstream. And suddenly, the back of his car came at me, and I swerved to miss him. So now I've won the race, but there's a protest I've overtaken under the yellow flag. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the, the chief steward came to me, and in a strong Lancashire accent, he said, Now then, Brian Ladd, I'm Joe Smith from Accrington. Accrington was seven miles from where I lived in Burnley. <laughs> Well, I didn't know him. And he said, now then, as one Lancashire lad to another, did Sussy yellow flag or not? And I said, no, I didn't. And he said, right, lad, you're the winner. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) And just after that, this gentleman came up to me. He said, I'm Carl Haas, the Lola importer for North America. And I'm forming a partnership with the Jim Hall of Chaparral. Uh, Would you like to drive for us next year? So you did end up racing in Formula One quite a, quite a bit, but you never you never came away with a, a, a Grand Prix you know championship. Was that something that you felt you could have done if you had been there more? No, I didn't really. I was already pretty old. You know, I never drove a single seater till I was thirty. Mm-hmm. And when I drove, when Piers Courage was killed in the Williams. Frank Williams called and said, would I like to do the British Grand Prix and I, which I went down. I only did a few laps. I came into the pits and the mechanics were looking at the suspension and Frank said, we're withdrawing the car. I think they'd found something that had broken. This is probably what caused Piers Courage's accident and death. Uh, but he did say to me, you are going to be world champion, aren't you? And I said, I don't think so. And he said, oh, <laughs> 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 it's it's interesting that you know you feel like do you feel like if you got what you mentioned your age let me just put it this way so you were 30 31 years old you know getting into the into the formula one stuff if you had gotten into those cars younger do you think you would have been able to do it i don't really know i didn't enjoy the atmosphere you know in formula one and goodness knows what it's like now what, you know, what, what was it about the atmosphere now. that you didn't like just the general backbiting, double dealing, and everything else, you know. I mean, at, um, at Harama, Madrid, the Spanish Grand Prix, um, I'd, Danny Hume came up to me in the airport as we were flying home. Nobody had private planes in those days. So everybody's there, and at the top of his voice, he's shouting and yelling at me. Why didn't you get out of the way when somebody's trying to pass you and all this sort of stuff? And I'd lowered my rear wing to get more speed on the straight. <laughs> and so I was holding up, you know, I was, he couldn't get past me on the straight and I was holding him up around the corners, but he just shouted and yelled. And I just thought, you know, who needs all this? Yeah, yeah that seems, I mean, 
I think the way that things are now, things are so, the image of things are so controlled. I doubt you'd see anybody yelling at each other at the airport, but yeah, that's strange. Yes, well, that's the way it was. So I think, you know, in, in 1973, which was my first year with Jim Hall and Carl Haas in Formula 5000, I'd finished second to Joe DeSchecter, but I'd missed two races. I actually won five races and Jody won four. And if I'd done the other two, I think I would have won the championship. But anyway, at the end of 73, Don Nichols, who ran the shadow team, asked if I'd like to do the American Grand Prix at Watkins Glen. And I outqualified his regular drivers, Jackie Oliver and George Fulmer, by quite a lot. They were like 22nd and 23rd, and I was 13th or something. But it broke down early on. But then Don Nichols said, would you do Formula One next year? Well, I just had this great year with Jim Hall, you know, and Carl Haas. And I thought I'd rather be finishing up in the top three than somewhere down in the middle to the back of the field in Formula One. And so I said, no, thanks. I turned it down. And the driver who took my place was Peter Revson, who was then killed, you know, at Kyle Army. Mm-hmm. And at that time, uh, Carl Haas rang to say that the 5000 series was off because there was no money. And so I didn't have a drive. And four days later, Don Nichols rang and said, you know, would you reconsider? I didn't have a drive, so I said yes. So I did the Spanish Grand Prix, the Belgian Grand Prix. And at Monaco, on Sunday morning, the phone rang an urgent call from America. Carl Haas, the series is back on. <laughs> so I told, you know, that uh, that I was not, that was my last Formula 1 race. I was going back to Formula 5000. Well, it seems uh, like, it's you're doing this and you're doing that and you're racing formula 5,000 you're thinking about formula one and then there's a target floor like all these things are going on all at the same time how do you (laughs) you're flying all over the place you're away from home it must have been extremely taxing well it was in 1972 it was 73 i failed my medical at uh, le mans i'd come straight from a formula 5,000 race at mid ohio and it, it was exhausting. I was going backwards and forwards. Of course, I lived in England at that time. So I'm flying to America. I'm flying back to Europe to race back to America again. It was very difficult. Speaking of Formula One, just a little bit more. Tell me about beating Denny Holm at Monte Carlo in, in a McLaren. Uh, well, that was um, that was okay. It was raining. I mean, the, all the practice and all of the race, it was raining. And I'd qualified just behind him. It was my first time at Monaco. And so at the start of the race, I'm following him because you can't see for all the spray. And he missed the chicane. And so we went down the escape road, me with him. Well, when we got going again, because we were at the back of the field. So anyway, I was, you know, I got going and I passed him. I lapped him three times. And I had a puncture, so I had to stop for a punctured left tire to change it, left rear. And finished fifth overall, but second Goodyear finisher behind uh, Jackie Stewart. The Firestone wet tyres at that time were much better than the Goodyear. And so I was the second Goodyear finisher. So that was a good drive. And and Spa, there's a, there's a, there was not always a chicane on top of Eau Rouge, right? There was no chicane. Uh, For you, the there was no day. chicane. No, that's, you know, in the old days at uh, Le Coombe at the top of the hill. You went left and down into the countryside past Berneville and Stabolo 
way, way out. It was like eight miles around at that time. But today, at the top of the hill, you turn right and you go through a series of tight corners before going downhill. It's about four and a half miles. And you had, that's, do you have any insight on why they might have put a chicane there? Um, well, <laughs> why, the reason they always put chicanes is to slow the cars down. Yes, yeah, sure. But you, uh, you had an incident there, did you not? Well, it wasn't a chicane. It was a corner. Oh, okay. But it, it was the second slowest corner on the track. But still, it was at about 120 miles an hour. Uh, whereas the slowest corner at uh, Spa is La Source, which is the hairpin in first gear. And so at uh, Le Coum, I come rushing up in the Cooper and I clamped the brakes on and nothing happened. And, you know, you don't have much time. And I tried to spin the car uh, to go backwards instead of forwards. And uh, uh, the, the steering was locked. There was no steering. And so I hit the barrier and rolled over. My right arm got caught between the barrier and the car. And my, I felt my arm break, you know, the ulna and the radius. Mm. bones broke and came out so it was a compound fracture three wheels came off i went right into a marshal's post and one of the wheels hit a corner worker who was badly injured he got a ruptured spleen and then a heart attack and it was a scene from hell really it was terrible i mean how many you've come out of a lot of this stuff it's yes it's luck truly I mean, at some point, you know, this it has to be attributed to luck and fate that you're still here. Yes, because after winning the three Formula 5000 championships in 74, 5 and 6, with Mario finishing second in 74 and 5, and Alonso second in 76, they changed the rules and made us put bodywork on these open wheel cars and call it Caman. It was a marketing exercise. So I arrive in saint Jovit, Canada, for the first race of the new year in the end of May, 77. And I go out in the car, which I haven't seen before, but it's prepared by Chaparral, who I've driven for four years. And I knew it would be good, and it was good. And in 20 minutes, I came in, and Jim Hall said, how is it? I said, it's good. You know, And he said, what do you want to, you know, to change the balance of the car? And I said, drop the front wing a quarter of an inch. And on the next lap, at 170, it took off, went about 40 feet in the air, turned over and came down. And that broke my neck, C1, smashed my left shoulder, split my breastbone, broke my ribs, and the roll bar broke. My head went down on the road. My helmet was worn down each side. And then um, the, the ambulance blew a tire on the way to hospital. So when my wife arrived from England the next day, the headline uh, in the paper was Redmond A. Moore. Redmond is dead. And there was a photograph of the ambulance with the two guys working on the wheel and me in the bank not looking too good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's most you've got mostly good luck, but bad luck that the that you lost the tire. She sounds like a hell of a woman, honestly. You know, that's she, yes, she is. You know, yes. I, I've heard, though, that you had a tiff with her one night after spa. Uh, yes, it was a, <laughs> yes, Joe Sippert in 1970, after we'd had these tyre problems during practice in the 917, and then we went on to win the race, and it was the fastest uh, road race ever run, including the pit stops at an average of 149 miles an hour. And uh, that night at the boring prize giving in Spa, where all the officials are thanking each other, um, <laughs> it came to an end about, 10.30 or so, and my co-driver, Joe Sivert, said, Brian, 
we go and have a drink with the mechanics. <laughs> so uh, Marion was not happy about this. Our son James was there, who was five years old. So I took them back to the hotel and off we go. I didn't know that the mechanics were like 40 minutes away. Yeah. And we finally got back to the hotel at 4 a.m. in the morning and uh, couldn't walk upstairs. And there was a lot of noise and Porsche were banned from the hotel. <laughs> So tell me about uh, Le Mans. You had terrible luck at Le Mans. You know, it's, you've, you've got good luck and you've got bad luck, and you never had any good luck there, it doesn't sound like. No. Uh, we actually were leading four times with a genuine chance of winning when always something went wrong. The uh, first time was in 69 with the factory Porsche, and the 917 had just come out, and Joseph and I thought it was too new. And we chose a 908, which we'd been winning races with. And it was a special version, a new version with a long tail to help the speed on the Nelson Strait. It's four miles long. And anyway, we were leading about eight in the evening and it, the gearbox overheated. It had never been long-term tested with that tail. So that was 69. And then 70 in the John Wire 917K, we were leading by four laps. That's 32 miles. At about two in the morning, and uh, Joseph was driving, and he came through the chicane, which is just by the pits, and three slower cars, of course, each having their own race, were ahead of him, all in a line. And he dived off to the right, and right in front of the Porsche pit, he missed a gear, and we all heard the engine go. You know, so oh. That 917 engine would go to 8,400 for 40 hours. If it went once to 8,600, the valve gear broke. It went to a lot more than 8.6. Yeah, then I... the, the Ferrari in 1973, um, very unusually, Jackie X said to me, Brian, I wish you to start the race. I said, what for? He said, I do not wish the battle with Mazzario. Arturo and Mazzario and Jackie were not friends. So I started and I said, I'll come past the pits, you know, in fifth or sixth place, the end of the first lap which I did, by one, we were in the lead. And then an exhaust header broke, and then we had a fuel leak. But still, you know, with about 40 minutes to go, we were in second place, and I was getting changed in the trailer, and Jackie came in. It's the engine that had gone, the, you know, the exhaust pipe that was fractured had caused the mixture to go weak on that cylinder. And the engine had broken. It was very emotional. All the, you know, the Ferrari and the mechanics were pushing the car away in tears. And they go standing ovation from the crowd in the grandstands there. Yeah, I mean, if you're in like the 22nd, 23rd hour, I mean, you're exhausted. The emotions have <laughs> yeah. got to be pushing you pretty good. And in 79, I was invited to drive a 936 Porsche with Jackie X again. And... Uh, in my first session, this was so very early in the race, when I came through the chicane, the car didn't feel right in the second part, which was a right-hander. And I should have gone straight into the pits because the pit entry was just past the chicane. But I didn't. I decided to carry on. So I turned into the Dunlop curve at 180 miles an hour and the 936 spun. What I'd felt was the left rear tyre going down. 
then sort of spun all the way around, like the lock curve, and then made a big swerve at the end, didn't hit anything, drove it on the bad tyre to the uh, Eau Rouge, the start of the Malsan Strait, where there's some space, and I cut the tyre off the rim with a hacksaw that we carried in the toolkit, and now we've lost, you know, 40 minutes, and I thought it's finished. I mean, Hold I on a second. Out. So you're pulled over on the side of, side of the road with a yes. hacksaw cutting the tyre off the wheel? Yes. By yourself? Yeah. <laughs> yes, you won't allow to have any assistance. I know, but you you got to understand that from my perspective, that sounds normal to you. But for me, that sounds absolutely crazy. The the cacophony of the cars going by and just the pure danger of being on the side of the road doing that. Yeah, but driving it round on, on the bad wheel, on the wheel rim, mm -hmm. on the verge with cars coming past 200 miles an hour wasn't much fun. <laughs> not much so, better. I thought uh, we were out, but it was repaired. And so we're going again. And then about two in the morning, the rain is pouring down. Terrible. And I'm up in the pits above the, you know, in the box above the pits. And uh, on the little television set, a notice comes up, X is stopped on the Mulsanne Strait. Mm. Well, 20 minutes later, X is going again. It was a fuel pump drive bolt and broken. And he'd replaced it. We carried one in the spares kit. And then five minutes later, X is stopped again at the Mouth Sand corner. And now, you know, I know we're out. So I'm not too sorry because the rain, the lightning and thunder. Anyway, half an it hour later. It almost seemed like a relief. <laughs> well, yes, yeah. it was. Yes, I wasn't. Half an hour later, X is going again. He comes into the pits. Norbert Singer, the team manager, waves. I go down. I've got my oldest friend in the world there, Ian Gein. I shook hands with him. I thought, this is it. And I'm driving, you know, in 200 miles an hour in the dark and the rain. And I, 40 minutes, I get an out-of-sequence pit signal. Pit. So I pit. And here Singer leant over. He said, Brian, you can get out. We were disqualified one and a half hours ago. Oh, no. <laughs> because uh, a mechanic had taken a sandwich for Jackie, and inside the sandwich was another drive belt. <laughs> How did they find out about this? Well, they saw it. You know, they were oh. watching. Yeah, well, of course, they're always, yeah. they're always watching. What is, you know, what is it like driving in the rain, in the dark? Is the track well lit? It just kind of explain how that, how that feels to, to experience. No, there were no lights at all. And of course, the headlights in those days were nothing like they are today. And so it was miserable, terrible, horrible, actually. It is horrible. Like in the daytime, even in the 917 on the Mulsanne Strait, when you're catching a slower car, you don't see anything except a ball of spray. You don't know where the car is. Is it on the right? Is it on the left? And you just have to go blinding through, hoping for the best. And the, the tires are horrible, I imagine. You know, you have rain tires today. They're pretty good. Then I'm imagining not so good. They weren't as good, no. <laughs> and, at, you know, at around 180 to 90 miles an hour, you'd be going down the Mulsanne, and suddenly the back end would just let loose. You know, it'd go, boof, like that as the wheels let loose. Boof. <laughs> So another name that most people listening to the podcast will recognize is Vasek Polek. And you guys had a fairly interesting, albeit not a long relationship. Yeah, he was an amazing guy. I mean, really one of the most amazing people that I ever met, I think. He came to America as a 40-year-old, you know, technician and mechanic, uh, not speaking English. 
and he worked for Hoffman, the big dealers up in New York for a year or two. And then he packed his Volkswagen van, got his tools and drove to California. You know, he opened a Porsche repair place doing work, you know, for the wealthy enthusiasts there, like uh, Johnny von Neumann, a bunch of them out there. And he was an amazing guy. And what, what was your experience with him? Because you had a, you, ra- you raced, what, a 917 with Jody Schechter, correct? Uh, Jody Schechter was his Can-Am driver for 1973. And one day, Vashek rang me. He said, Brian, Brian, I have another 917.10. You come to Willow Spring and test. So I went to Willow Springs and tested both cars. Then he said, what do you think? I said, I think uh, Jody's car is more solid on the road, but mine is okay. So at Riverside, California, uh, there's a very quick left-hander at about 200 miles an hour before turn nine. And uh, on Friday afternoon, something broke, and I felt it give way a bit and wiggle a bit. And I pitted, and it had broken a right rear suspension support tube. And they repaired it, and on Saturday, it did the same thing again, but a different tube, not the same one. And so I never slept Saturday night, and Sunday morning, I said to Vashik, Vashik, I don't think the car's safe. He said, Brian, you guys work all night. The car is perfect. But if you don't wish to drive, this is okay. So I said, okay, I'll drive it. And I'd finished second uh, to Mark Donahue in the 917.30 in the heat race. So now this is the final. I'm lying in second place to Donahue. And this time in the same turn, uh, 200 something really let go. And I went sideways and then back again. And fortunately, I didn't hit anything, unlike Rolf Stommelen, who'd been killed there in a 9.35. Mm-hmm. So I go in the pits, Vashek, what's the matter? What's the matter? And I lift the back, and I see for the first time that the bottom right rear wishbone is just a single mounting to the chassis. And 917.10s have two mountings, what they call parallel links, two rods. So I said to Vashek, I said, Vashik, you know, why does it not have the parallel links like 917.10? He said, this is Joe Sivert original Canamcom from 1969. I said, what? (laughs) I said, you put a thousand horsepower engine in it and copied the bodywork from the 917.10? He said, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was definitely different then, that's for sure. Yeah. So some years later, probably 10 years ago, a car had been bought by the Collier Museum in Naples, Florida, and taken back to its original Can-Am spec, but with a five-liter engine instead of 4.5, as Joe had. And uh, I go out in it. I do two slow laps. Come in. They check the wheels. They look for an oil leak. I go out. And on the fourth corner, I come rushing down. I put the brakes on. The right front wheel leaves the scene. (laughs) <laughs> and I, try, I tried to turn right, thinking, you know, the left is still there. And as I did that, the left front wheel came off. I went straight into the banking hard. Oof. Again, the luck. Yes. <laughs> you could consider it good or bad. I guess it's if you're still here, it's 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 pretty good. Yes, exactly. Been lucky. Oh, Brian, it's been, uh, is there anything else you'd like to talk about? I don't think so. I'm about talked out. All right, man. It's 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 been such a pleasure having you on. It really has. And you know, I always I always look forward to your event at Road America. I've been going there since I was a kid. It's been an inspiration to me. 
And it's been great watching vintage racing have this, you know, I'm not saying it ever, you know, kind of petered out, but it's had a, like a huge growth in the last few years. And it's been yes. awesome to yes. see. And, and I encourage everybody to wherever you live, uh, you know, hit out to your vintage race. And I think that there's a lot of people that have never been to road America that should come out. And it's one of the most yeah. beautiful racetracks in the country. It's it's in its mostly in its original layout on on natural elevation. It's a beautiful place to be. It's fantastic. I was actually up in Elkhart Lake on the fifteenth of January, where it was not so beautiful. I'm so sorry <laughs> <laughs> that I I decided to take a lift. You know, it's like an Uber, a yeah. car service. Yeah from Milwaukee to Elkhart Lake, and it was $109, which is good. And I spoke to the BMW club at the pit stop on Saturday night, and I was back in the hotel at 9.30, and I went on my phone to book a lift ride back to the airport on Sunday morning, $750. Holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they know you're already out there. (laughs) Once they know you're gone, you got to get back. How long have they been doing the... The stuff where they, because they always bring, you know, they have the parade. They take all the race cars from the track and they drive them down Elkhart Lake. Do you know how that was conceived or how that first happened? No. I mean, I've been coming as Grand Marshal for probably 25 years and it's pretty well always happened. There was one incident probably five or six years ago. With the McLaren. When, yes, I was going back to the track at six o'clock as everybody was coming down. And I saw this McLaren had left a big gap, you know, to the next car ahead of him. And as we passed each other, he's going towards Old Cut Lake, I'm going to the track. I hear this, boom, you know. <laughs> I looked in the mirror, just held him, he'd gone. You know, he's upside down in a ditch. I mean, how nobody was hurt. It was incredibly fortunate. <laughs> and they missed some spectators. You know how spectators sit on the side of the road. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it could have been dangerous. I'm, I'm, you know, those are the type of things that happen. And then everybody goes, nope, no more. All done. But I'm, I'm glad that maybe everybody yes. sees that as a lesson. And, you know, yes. I'm glad it continues. Yes. Yes. Yeah. All right, Brian. I will come shake your hand and I'll see you. Uh, I'll see you this summer. Okay, Chris, look forward to it. Thank hey, you. Hey, thanks so much for hanging out. I really appreciate it. Catch you later. Take care. I know. Bye. Now, before we get too much further, let's take a break here and talk about our sponsor, Olberg Car Care. Olberg is your source of professional detailing compounds and supplies that is research tested and developed by professional detailers themselves. These are the guys that are actually passionate about detailing and know firsthand what makes a good product. And they truly are great products. I love it's a simple, foolproof two-step system, easy, and gives an amazing finish. And right now, they're offering a whopping 20% off your order when you use the code OVERCREST. The discount code is good not only on OBERCCARCARE.com, but also on DetailedImage.com and CarSuppliesWarehouse.com. Please go check them out today. And if you have not signed up for the OVERCREST Drivers Club yet, you can do that at overcrestproductions.com slash drivers club for five bucks. You can have exclusive access to this episode and many more way before they come out. You can have access to the merch that we're going to be putting out way before everybody else. Plus, you get to support something great. Overcrestproductions.com slash drivers club. Incredible to hear from Brian Redman, one of the uh, most accomplished and and <laughs> sounds like lucky drivers of all time living through you know, what was one of the, what, like what we see as the, as the golden era of motor racing. And I kind of alluded to it a little bit in the, in the interview, but I feel like as 
as someone who has like nostalgia, I don't have nostalgia. I guess I have blind nostalgia. You know, I, I look back at that period of time going, wow, that looks incredible. It was, it was full of risk and intrigue and moxie and, and, uh, and courage. And, and you think it's this wonderful, beautiful time. And it, it might've been, you know, but you also think of all the times where there was tragedy and, and, and death, but without that stuff, you have, where's the contrast of, of overcoming, you know, you look at the, at the racing today is, are they taking the risk? Maybe they're taking, uh, maybe they're taking more risk because they're, they're safer as Brian said. I'm not sure. And the Brian Redmond challenge at road America really is an incredible event. If you have not been out there, it's amazing. They, it, it is a beautiful track. They have, they have camping, obviously there's camping all over the track. So you, you go on the website, you, you sign up, you get a camp spot, but the camp spots are right next to the track. So in the morning you wake up and you hear the car start. If you really want, you can wake up really early and you can walk up to the paddock as the sun is rising. You can check out all the cars as the covers are peeled off and stuff. That's, it's really a really special time. But if you end up sleeping in till, you know, eight o'clock, you'll hear the voice come over to the megaphone. Good morning, Road America the same guy's voice that I've been hearing for for decades and you wake up and you start hearing some of the pre-war cars head out on track and you you get up and you wander around and the paddocks are open and and you can talk to the mechanics you can see the cars there's always a ton of can-am stuff there you know road america was was known for some of that the uh uop cars are always there the shadows they're absolutely incredible and there's always uh, a different a featured mark whether it's porsche ford whatever or the mustang or trans am stuff like that the variety is crazy from old Le Mans cars to Formula One to, you know, TDI Le Mans cars. It's the whole gamut. Everything is there. It's really worth taking some time to head out and, and check it out. And of course, another thing I want to remind everybody to do is check out Brian Redmond's book. You can find it on Amazon. It's fantastic. I have a lot of these old books um, of, of old race car drivers. I've got uh, Hurley's book. I've got Hobbs book. I've got Redmond's book. I've got all these books. His is really, really good too. I really encourage everybody to read it. Great stories. Obviously you can hear he's a wonderful storyteller and the book is great as well. You can find it on Amazon. Check it out. That w- I'm sure he would really, really appreciate that. Guys, that's all we have time for today. I really hope you enjoyed my interview with Brian Redman, uh, someone that I've I've known of for a very long time and have have you know we've been like ships in the night passing over and over again, but we finally got got to make it happen. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, we will see you guys next week. <laughs>